Hi guys and welcome to Deshaming. Deshaming is a podcast and movement dedicated to raising awareness about incest abuse, sexual abuse, and childhood family trauma. I'm your host Pamela Clark and I'm a licensed behavioral therapist. I currently live in San Antonio, Texas and I'm also a survivor of incest abuse. I'm happy to say, I'm, I'm elated to say that today I am thriving. So sit back, relax, and I hope that this podcast and movement prompts you to get involved and helps you on your path to de-shaming. Hi, we are here today with the beautiful, strong, passionate Shannon Page. She is an incest abuse survivor. She's married with two beautiful children, 22 and 5. That's a big age difference. She's going to talk a little bit about that. (laughs) And she is also a massive advocate for trauma survivors. So I'm not going to chat too much or run my mouth too much. I'm going to launch right in and let Shannon start with her story. Hi, Shannon. Thank you for being here. Yes, thank you. Um, It's a pleasure. Yay. Okay, hit it. Tell us all about you. Um, Okay, so uh, like you said, I am um, married almost five years with my husband for 12. I have my two kids. Um, The last six months or so, I've really become focused on um, my my trauma story, my childhood story, and advocacy um, for other trauma survivors, mostly because I've realized over the last few years of my healing um, that that, that community support, I mean, our family support systems are great um, and they're necessary, but having people that have been there that understand on a level that um, only other abuse survivors can understand Amen. Uh, and provide support, support you know? Um, yeah. So I've, I've been really focused on trying to create that community, um, not just for myself, obviously, but for others as well. Right. Um, so my story... Um, <laughs> I told my story live on Instagram for the first time, August 1st of this year, prior to that, (laughs) prior to that, it's only been in writing and it's been very fragmented. Took me almost the whole hour of stream to get it out. So I'm still working on shortening it. So let's see what I can do here. (laughs) Um, so, (laughs) So my life, um, I, I sadly, I always start my story by saying my life actually began in loss and tragedy. My mom went into a diabetic coma during childbirth. Mm. Um, she never woke up and 18 days later she died. Um, we were living in California near my mom's side of the family, my dad and I, uh, we lived there till I was about two or three. I'm not really exact. I'm not exactly sure. And then he moved us to Washington state to be near his family. Um, from the age of five until about age 12, I was molested by my dad's father, by my paternal grandpa. Uh, And it was obviously unknown to me at the time, but it became very clear to me as I got older that the reason I grew up in such an unsafe uh, and unprotected environment is because my grandfather was um, a big family secret and a generational pedophile. Um, He had had molested my, my aunt, his own daughter, most of her childhood as well. Um, so the, the earliest story I have from, um, my dad's sister, cause there was a, a period of time where she and I stayed in contact, 
um, we're estranged now for the most part. And that is a whole nother chapter of my story that I'll probably not even be able to get into. We'll have you back um, on to talk about when we talk about familial relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, she had told me that the first time I spoke up was in kindergarten and my dad and grandma, they both went to the school to assure the school officials that I was, that I was lying, that I was actually just telling stories. So um, you know, my dad never worked when I was a kid. Um, so in general, my, my upbringing with that family for the, for the most part, uh, until actually age 14 was very, in, you know, unstable, very unsafe. There was, uh, no adults in my life that I could trust. Um, and clearly I was, I was being made available. I was, I mean, we were at my grandparents' house all the time. My grandfather had a lot of access to me as a child. Um, so that went on. My dad had um, some different relationships. There was there was a lot of different just kind of neglect, abandonment, abo- emotional abuse that all kind of happened in all these years. And like I said, if I I could spell it all out, but it would I could take up an hour of your time just on the abuses of my dad. And my dad never really beat me. He never, you know, um, abused me physically. He was just emotionally unavailable. Called me a liar betrayed me to my abuser when I spoke. I did speak up a couple other times. My dad did tell my grandfather I was talking. Um, so my grandpa, I, I did, there were consequences for speaking up because, you know, you're not supposed to talk when this kind of right. stuff is going on. Right. Um, so I, um, you know, but through all of this, I remember as a kid, like my dad was still my hero and I was going to live with him for always and forever, you know? Yeah. Um, so right around age 12 is when the abuse ended uh, from my grandfather. And that came about because I had a conversation with, I feel like it was an adult at school. My memory is very foggy. It may have been a teacher's aide. I don't remember who it was. It was after class um, outside one of the classrooms on the grounds of the school. I was sitting in a circle of other kids and I just asked this like adult figure if what if it was okay for adults to do the things that my grandpa was doing with me. Right. And they told me no. And so at 12, I do, I do remember having like walking up to my grandfather and saying to him, look, I had this conversation with somebody at school and they said that what we're doing isn't, isn't right. And I don't really want to do this anymore. I, I just, you know, I don't think we should. And my grandpa just stopped. Um, and I, and I think it had to do with probably his age. And, you know, maybe he didn't want to deal with it. Um, I spoke up a lot, despite the fear that I lived with as a kid, the more that I really think about my story. So I think that it was very clear to my family that I wasn't going to go quietly into the night, you know. Um, and, And when I really look at my life now, I've always said I'm an advocate and a fighter and I'm passionate about social justice and, you know, all that stuff because of everything that I've been through. Mm -hmm. But really, I think everything I've been through just made that innateness in me richer. I think that I was born to be loud and, you know, like out there. Yeah. Yeah. As much as I hate being like the center of attention, I need to be in control. So it's like, I'll lead the crowd, but just (laughs) don't put the cameras on me. Okay. Right. Um, so it's, it's an interesting combination to balance, but, um, so my abuse stopped at 12 um, and I, I stayed with my dad um, for two more years. 
Um, what ended up happening is my dad, like I said, most of my life was unemployed. We lived off of um, social welfare programs, government assistance, things like that. He did get a job for a short period of time when I was, I want to say I was like fifth or sixth grade. Um, my my memory of the timeline of my childhood is very uh, broken and, so and foggy. Yeah. Um, so I, I really grasped for like the music I was listening to to give me like years <laughs> and stuff. Um, so we had, when, when he got a job, we moved into like a nicer apartment where he was actually paying um, a higher, you know, dollar of rent than the subsidized housing we lived in the majority of my childhood. Well, he only held that job for a matter of months. And shortly thereafter, we lost our, our apartment. Now he was dating this woman um, who lived nearby. We ended up moving into her apartment with her and her son, but it was not big enough. Um, uh, I feel like if I describe the apartment, anybody that knew apartments in the eighties would understand the layout. But so it was like this little <laughs> dining room into this galley kitchen that was like off the living room when you walked in the door and they put up plywood and created this little space in there that was just big enough like for my bed and dresser and that was my bedroom nice um you know because every kid wants to live in the kitchen of course yeah I mean that's so idyllic yeah um and uh so that was you know and and I remember this woman not liking me I you know and again these are all stories that I could just trail off into um but it just adds to the instability so we moved in with her that relationship didn't last very long within a matter of months they were split she was moving out we were staying in the house till the end of the month when her lease was up um and the next thing i know we're living with my my aunt his sister so we're sleeping in her living room now <clears throat> and that is this the aunt that the grandfather Okay. Molested also. Yes. It's my dad's sister. Okay. So, um, so we're living with her by this point, I'm 14 and, uh, I'm, I'm pretty scared. I don't remember how it happened. I know I was just really scared of being homeless. You know, we'd been bouncing. There was just so much instability at that point. Um, I don't know how it came about. I had my grandparents in California. Um, and I always used to go see them in the summer. Every, every summer for a couple of weeks, I would fly down and spend time with that side of my family. And this is your mom's grandparents? My mom's parents. Your mom's yeah, my mom's parents. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, my good, my good grandparents. The good grandparents. <laughs> so good. Um, so I, I, maybe it was my aunt's influence. I, I'm not really sure. But I ended up calling my grandparents and saying, you know, hey, can I come live with you guys till my dad gets on his feet? And then I'll come back, you know, up here by him. They talked it over and and basically said, if you come live with us, we want custody. So at 14, I made that decision. And with my aunt's support, told my dad I wanted him to sign custody of me over to my grandparents in California. Um, and it was a really ugly exchange. I, You know, my dad told me if I left, he was going to lose all of his government benefits. Um, you know, he, he even told that, me he was going to go. Can I just pause you for a minute? Cause what I want to, sure. it's really interesting to me. And, and this is such the narcissistic abuser mentality. It wasn't that I'm losing my daughter. Mm-hmm. I'm going to lose you. The only person who has consistently stayed with me, I'm going to lose the paycheck. Yep. I just wanted the people listening to let's don't skip that. Yeah, no, and and even at fourteen, I understood what it what it meant to to feel like a meal ticket. It's sad. You know? I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, and then and and during this same conversation, he actually told me he was gonna if I left, he would go kill himself. 
So, so again, at 14, I had to tell my dad that, that these are not decisions that I can be responsible for. Right. Um, and I'll tell you saying that and feeling it, I don't think, you know, I, I think as a kid, as a fighter, I, I knew what to say. Right. But I mean, my world was shattering (laughs) in in those moments. Um, So I ended up leaving. I left my dad um, about, I think it was like a month or two later, my grandparents came, picked me up and and the custody and everything uh, transitioned legally. And I moved to California. Um, I was 14 years old when I moved. I was just finishing up my my eighth grade year. Uh, And... um, I'm not exactly sure how or why, because again, we're talking now, now we're like two years outside of the abuse and I am far away now. I'm thousands of miles away. Um, I just closed to my grandma and, um, and this is my good grandma. Yeah. And I, and again, I don't know why, um, but she's the first person that ever did anything. Uh, as soon as I talked to her about it, she got me into counseling. There was a, you know, the mandated reporting, it was probably a year or so um, that went by in a flash full of investigations and statements and um, phone calls and trips to the police station. Uh, <clears throat> I remember the day my grandma picked me up from school and I wasn't expecting her and she signed me out and we went to lunch and she told me that they had arrested my grandpa. Um, I, I had at one point I had to call him on a recorded line and get him to admit it. Uh, and that was difficult. I don't remember the whole conversation. What I do remember is telling him that I was concerned that he was going to hurt my cousins the way he hurt me now that I was gone. And he said that he didn't hurt me. That's like the only thing I remember. Yeah. Um, so well, he admitted it, but he said, I'm not, no, I'm not doing any of that. I didn't hurt you either is what he said. So we did get him on the tape. Okay. Um, okay. And, you know, so we, we went through, through Can I the ask invest- a question. Do you mind? Sure. When you tell that part of it, do you, does it feel like a tornado of emotions? Like you're, cause I saw right. your, your face pause, your beautiful face pause. And it gets caught in my throat. Yeah, I can see it because I I know it. And I just want people to understand. Tell you can hear her voice is really clear and beautiful and strong, but it's so hard to have to tell that again and again and again. And it, mm-hmm. I want people to understand the strength that it takes to have to live that and feel it again. And so that's why it's so important. So one day we don't have to have anybody have to tell it again and again and again. Yeah. And, but there is empowerment and healing in saying it and and letting go of that. Cause the more I tell the story, the the more perspective I gain that this isn't mine to carry. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so it gets caught in my throat is my loss, (laughs) you know, more so than, um, but yeah, it's, it is, it's, this kind of stuff, it definitely gets caught, caught in your throat, tightens your lips, you know, makes your eyes burn. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, that, and my whole point of that is that it doesn't make you weak. It makes you strong that you are willing to go through that and share the story because you, you comprehend what yeah. it means to other people. Yeah. It's very important that we all feel the, yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. That we all, that we know we're not alone. 
you know, because, yeah. because some of us have seen some really ugly stuff and, and, and we just sit there thinking no one could possibly understand what I'm going through. And then we hear someone else's story that drops our own jaw and it's like, wow. Okay. So they get it. Yeah. You know, I, I had a lady on my show just recently who told a story that was just, she was such an inspiration to listen to. And her story was so devastatingly, tragically beautiful. And it was like, I mean, if ever there was beauty to come from such horror, you know, it was amazing to hear her story. And so that's why it's so important, I think, for us to share. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so we're, my, I found out my grandpa was arrested. And um, over the course of, I don't, I, again, timeline is pretty much shot. I came to learn that my aunt had also been molested. This is when I learned. Um, my aunt would not go to the police willingly. She actually told me herself that she couldn't do it, that, but that she wouldn't lie. Um, so at the time I was just like, yay, I have this person on my side now. As an adult, I get very angry that even at that point in her life, she couldn't stand up and defend me. I still had to like push her through the door, you know, um, regardless, I try to be understanding that this was her father. You know, she was surviving, uh, the best way she knew how at that time. And she did become a character witness in the trial. Um, my aunt was in fact, uh, a sworn witness to testify. So, um, so all of this happened, you know, my whole family got stirred up. Um, by this point, my father and I were completely estranged. I did try to stay in touch with him when I first moved, but it got really ugly. Um, in general, at, at one point there was a conversation, he called me a gold digger <laughs> for moving in with my grandparents. Oh my. Um, yeah, it got pretty ugly. So by the time that the trial happened, November of 1995, uh, my father and I were uh, probably about a year estranged at that point, having not spoken or anything. Um, so my grandma and I flew from California to Washington. That's where the trial was, where my grandfather was being, um, where he was, you know, arrested and, and whatnot, where he was living. First day of the trial, day before the trial. Day before the trial is the day I found out that my father was a sworn witness for the defense. He had given deposition uh, and was going to testify that I was um, a habitual liar and that while I had said something once to him, it was during sex education and school and that I was very confused and just had a very vivid imagination. Um, and that was probably, <clears throat> that was probably one of the most shattering <laughs> moments Absolutely. Of course. Of my life. Of course. Um, so that happened the day before. That's, I found that out the day before when we, when we did the powwow with my attorneys. Um, so the next day, opening statements. Um, the tape that I had gotten him recorded on was, uh, I had, so <laughs> laws in California about recording third parties conflicted with laws in Washington about recording third parties. So they um, actually had testimony on the validity of the tape in order to try and get it um, entered into evidence. Right. So I was called to the stand the first day to testify about the tape, which I completely flubbed all of the dates on. <laughs> I was like, they were like, when did you do this? I think I gave them a month that was like six months different. Oh. Um, but during my short time on the stand regarding the tape, I was asked if my abuser was in the room and I was asked to point to my grandfather. Mm -hmm. So I did. 
the next day I was scheduled to testify, give my full, my full testimony about the abuse. Uh, and that morning the, uh, detectives came to our hotel room to let us know that my grandfather had shot himself that morning. Oh, wow. So that was it. Um, we packed up our hotel room. The trial was over and, uh, we went home and five days later I turned 16 <laughs> and I packed it all up and that was it. <laughs> How did you feel? I don't know. I yeah. really don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of memory. Um, of the like three days that I was in Washington for the trial, I probably have maybe two and a half hours of memory. I don't remember the entire first day other than hearing about my dad being a witness. Um, I read, I read about it in my diary to, you know, like I had put my diary away for years, pulled it out a few months ago and learned, or maybe it was like a year ago and learned that I had gotten in early that morning and we had had lunch with my aunt and we had like, you know, kind of bebopped around town and, you know, spent some time with family before we met with the attorneys. I don't remember any of it. I, I don't remember. Um, yeah, I don't, I just, I don't really remember any of it other than very specific moments. Right. Wow. Um, and, and as far as feeling like I, I thought that I didn't even write about it for a week in my diary, but when I look back, I did write about it the day it happened. That's amazing. So, yeah. Wow. I never kept a journal ever. That's, I still have struggled with that. I just didn't, I was too afraid people. I journaled a lot as a child, not anymore. Well, I publicly journal on my website, but that's about it. Um, so my story doesn't quite end there, but I'll try and wrap it up. Oh, real no, quick. no, keep going. Um, Fine. So, um, it's just, there's so many layers. So within 10 weeks of my grandfather's suicide and that whole trial just kind of falling apart, you know, cause my family just basically scattered and that was it. My dad and I still weren't talking. My aunt and I just, you know, well, we, I guess we kind of stayed in touch back then. Um, within 10 weeks, my rebellion and my inability to just control myself and my grandparents' real inability to understand trauma you know, like that. Um, so my, my guardianship ended up changing again. My grandparents couldn't handle me and I was just pretty much done with even trying to beg anybody to want me. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure. um, I had reconnected with my sister. Um, I do have a half sister from my dad and she's a couple years younger than me. I connected with her and her mom in Chicago. And so at 16, Shortly after the trial, I moved in with her. I just packed everything up. My guardianship was transferred legally again, and off to Illinois I went. Um, and the next 18 months of my life, I spent living with a woman who was very emotionally abusive and narcissistic and unstable in her own ways. Um, she was very abusive, you know, not, not necessarily physically abusive. Um, but in the 18 months that I lived with her, we lived in... Um, three different states. We moved a total of five times. I went to three different high schools. Um, it was, you know, she, she, on two different occasions and two different states got mad at me and I couldn't tell you what about, um, and tried to sign me into the foster system in those two states, but couldn't legally because I wasn't. Um, I remember at one point here in Wisconsin, right before I turned 18, when she tried to do it, I wasn't violent. I wasn't a threat to the household. She was just tired of my mouth. 
Oh, wow. Um, so the only way that they would take me is if I vi- voluntarily went, which I said I wouldn't. Um, so she was going to make me live in our unfinished basement. She was going to make me move out of the room that I shared with my sister at the time. So I ended up moving out um, and in with a friend until I turned 18. And, you know, at that point I had met my first husband and, you know, it was just kind of like a domino effect after I left my grandparents. It was just, I kind of, you know, 18 months running start out the door into a young marriage. I was pregnant right away. Um, You know, had my first child when I was just shy of 19 and my marriage ended quickly. Uh, And, you know, I, that's when I say like my first life ended, I shut the door on everything. Cause I kind of grouped my ex-husband into the whole childhood trauma. You know, I, he was a trauma sure. <laughs> as a friend of mine, trauma response. on a live, he was a trauma response. I yeah, had, absolutely. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, I interviewed a girl on my Instagram and she said that about her first marriage. And I was just like, wow, that is, that is brilliant. <laughs> well, I think that what that is, and I think I've talked about this in a, in one of the podcasts is, you picked what you were conditioned to be attracted to because our relationships as women and men too are formed by our pam- families, our parents and our familial relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So you were just continuing what you had been attracted to yeah. or had attracted to you yep. in your because it's more comfortable. Like we all, as human beings, we are attracted to what we know. We always yep. take the path of least resistance, right? So absolutely. absolutely, it was just a continuation of what, had been taught to you. Sad, yeah. Sad. Yeah. And that's, and that's exactly what it was. Um, I left my ex-husband at 21. Um, and I, that's when I say like my life number two started. Yeah. Um, and life number two was really uneventful. Life number two was, was 20 years just shy of dissociation, you know, of complete, just emotional and mental disconnect from, where I came from and, and in general in life from life, you know, now I would tell you during all of like my twenties and my early thirties that of course I trusted people and I had fulfilling relationships and I was ambitious and, you know, um, driven in my life and, you know, did everything to provide my child a stable upbringing. But really it was, I didn't trust anybody. I had a very isolated bubble and anybody that was considered family was outside that bubble unless I let them in. My son had such a rigid and strict schedule growing up that, you know, he didn't like the sports that I put him in and he, you know, because I wanted him to have such a normal life that I was vicariously pushing things on him that maybe, you know, didn't really interest him. Um, He never went to sleepovers. They were always at our house. Um, You know, there was just, it was, I didn't teach him proper boundaries because I didn't have them. I didn't um, practice proper boundaries with my, my oldest because I didn't have them. I didn't teach him proper emotional regulation or even how to identify emotions, you know, let alone to move through them or communicate them. Um, but again, I would have thought, I would have told you, you know, hands down, I was like a great parent, you know, and I, I'm not saying that I wasn't a good parent, but you know, Um, and so that was, and that was my, that was my second life. I, um, well, and I had a long-term relationship during that. I dated someone for about eight years, um, shortly after my ex-husband, but it was an extremely emotionally, uh, stunted relationship when, you know, it was, 
we were, I mean, for our age, you know, there was never any talk of commitment moving in together. We never shared bills or, you know, like we were always going Dutch, you know, he had his life. I had my life. And for our age, you would think that you're at that point building something with someone. Um, when I look at his family dynamic and where I come from, it all makes perfect sense now, but, you know, um, so I spent eight years in another really unhealthy relationship that, you know, continued to teach my son all the wrong things um, about how to be a functioning um, person. Um, and during that time, my real, my, my real identity, like my only identity was my work. So I was extremely ambitious, like to the point of burnout, whatever job I had. Um, but through all of this, having constant trauma response and trigger response to any type of stressful situation in my life. Um, so without recognizing it. So like I, you know, I remember struggling with anxiety and the feelings of anxiety that that nauseous in your stomach, that acid kind of bubbling, you know, not yeah. knowing what it was, that kind of fear, not even understanding that that was anxiety um, until I was in my late 30s and started healing. Not understanding the the depression and the lethargy that I was feeling was, you know, like clinical. It wasn't just, you know, there was there was an explanation for it. Um, <clears throat> the hypervigilance and the, you know, just all those things that I, that I did that, yeah, I just had no awareness of. <clears throat> right. Yeah. But ended your body up leaving, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. The body does remember. So I ended up in that relationship for about eight years. Um, at one point, right before I turned 30, you know, something happened that really kind of woke me up to it. And I, and I left and Shortly thereafter, I met my ex, or I met my husband now, and he was unlike anybody I'd ever met, and just totally not what I would have considered my type, you know. Um, but Completely. he ended up being, oh my gosh, he is <laughs> he is he is complete the complete opposite of anything I've yeah I've ever anybody I've ever um, led into my space, you know, um, as far as as a romantic partner. And, and, and it's funny, I actually, um, jokingly blame him for where I'm at now because I, um, he calmed my life down and gave me space to be myself. And not only did my nervous system not know what the fuck to do with calm, (laughs) but my, my sense of self was like, be my authentic self. What the hell is this? Well, I, you know, that all freaked me out. (laughs) And because you didn't know who you were. Oh, it was, it was like, and I mean, it was so I, yeah, I always joke with him that it was, it's his fault that he did this, but, um, or that, you know, his, him being such a great guy calmed everything down in my life and and flipped me out and caused everything to trigger and come back. But, um, no, so I met my husband when I was, um, 29, just turned. And it was like almost eight years later before all of this, this happened. So he even within our relationship, and that's again, a whole nother story, um, there's been a shift, right? I'm a different person now than I was when we first started dating because my healing began, um, four years ago. So, um, yeah, I met him. I saw like the good part of parts of life and what amazing things can happen from life. And I think it made it very clear, um, in contrast of what I missed, you know, and, um, we had our daughter in 2015 um, I, I truly believe that part of, of her, part of the trigger was her birth, you know, to kind of trigger me to, to wake up to it. Um, my husband and I started to have some issues and we don't fight. 
we don't, I mean, we disagree. We have our discussions. Um, but we've always, our communication's always been pretty spot on. In January, December, January, I think it was January of 2017, 2016. January of 2016. We had a fight. It was a bad fight. It was a fight that I thought was going to end our marriage. And um, it was probably the most intense, triggering episode I'd had at that, to that point in my life. Lasted about three days. I'm being almost as literal as I can possibly be when I say completely, completely withdrew for three days. Like I didn't talk to him. I didn't make eye contact. I was so angry and um, and upset. And there was just so much turmoil inside me. And I had no idea really what was going on. I just, scru- you know, crunched into my side of the couch um, in a ball on my side of the bed, like for, for almost three days, going to work, no kisses goodbye. No, like I was literally shut off. I'm amazed my husband stayed with me through those three days to have a fight like that, you know, and then for that to happen from me. Um, but then I was sitting at work one day and I just like this light bulb went off and I'm like, no, no, no way. There's no way that it could be. So I started Googling adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Never really at that point in my life, having identified directly with being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, knowing full well I went through it, never identifying as let alone incest abuse, you know, there's a whole different layer to it. For sure. So I started reading up on these articles and it was like reading this autobiography of myself. So I sent my husband a letter and I was just like, or a message, you know, Hey, I'm not really ready to talk about this yet, but I I need you to read a couple of these, these links. Um, I think this is what's going on now. Mind you at this point, he has no idea what kind of child like history I have. So he didn't know anything about your past. Okay. Not to, not like this, not to this point. I mean, he knew the basics lived with my dad. My dad was dead. Mom died at birth. You know, um, I might have breezed over it. Couldn't tell you though. I don't remember. Okay. Um, so this hit like a ton of bricks, you know, and, and that's where life number two ended and life number three began. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm in the third chapter, like third major chapter Word. <laughs> third part of my life right now, third part. Now the chapters will fall into this third part. So, um, I, I immediately sought out some help with a local agency, um, started speaking, uh, and this was a great agency, didn't need insurance, didn't need money. They didn't keep me for 45 minutes. I was able to go. I mean, I was in this lady's office a couple hours a night every week for a year and a half. Simultaneously, she put me in touch with an EMDR therapist who I still see regularly. I've been seeing my counselor for almost four years. Just for anybody Um, who's listening right now, because I have a guest coming up in a future podcast going to talk. Will you explain to them what EMDR is? Sure. So EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, The general concept or thought process behind the technique is that um, we process our day through REM sleep. And when we're extremely traumatized and stressed out and fearful and hypervigilant, we're not sleeping well, things aren't processing. Uh, EMDR uses uh, simulation to create or mimic REM sleep in a wakeful state with focused thought to help process. So for example... I have a situation that makes me feel not good enough. 
my counselor and I will set up uh, rating my feelings of, of, of intensity and overwhelm on a scale of zero to 10. Um, we'll come up with an image or thought that's, that screams what I'm feeling. I focus on that. I use vibrating paddles in my hands that, that vibrate back and forth, close my eyes so it makes my eyes move bilaterally back and forth uh, very quickly. And as I focus on that thought, the, the idea is that the back and forth movement moves that emotion and those thoughts through my brain so that they can process. Um, I've had cameos run in my head sometimes during EMDR sessions where I just get flashes. I'll start with something that's happening in real life. And then I just get this, these flashes of my whole life, um, you know, back to grade school, you know, as I'm kind of processing these things. And I'm, what it is, is I'm pinging all of these different times in my life that I felt the same way that this current situation is making me feel. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel good enough yesterday at work. We're focused on that in EMDR. And now I'm seeing all these different times with my grandparents, my dad, friends at school, teachers, et cetera, other work environments, you know, where I didn't feel good enough. Um, and it's all starting to process and the edges are dulling and, you know, and, and sometimes I felt it very physically when it, when it processes through my mind. Um, other times my mind goes blank. It's like, I've got my image. I'm going to focus. We start the bilateral movement and my brain goes completely like, yeah, Shan, you thought you were going to process that, you know, not so much. I love EMDR. It's been very, uh, it's been a wonderful technique for me. I haven't been able to do it this year. We do telehealth right now. Um, so I haven't been able to use that technique since the beginning of the year. Uh, and I do miss it, but, um, it's a very, very helpful technique for, um, complex trauma when you're trying yeah. to process stuff out of the system. So, yeah. Um, so I, I saw, I've been seeing, I saw both of the counselors for, um, just over a year and a half. So I was seeing a counselor twice a week for, <laughs> for an hour each. Um, <clears throat> well, I needed it. I was, when I presented to counseling and they gave me the, the PSAT, it, that P, the post-traumatic stress disorder um, questionnaire, mm-hmm. I schedule, it, it's like, a, I think you can score 85 total and I scored like a 78 Nice. When I first presented, nice. no, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I scored off the, I was in such emergency mode when I presented. Now I'm down into the thirties. Um, and I kind of just plateaued in there. I go up and down. Um, sometimes I go into the low forties, you know, it depends on, depends on the month prior and how bad the triggers are. But, um, you know, I've definitely over the last four years in counseling and, and as I've learned what trauma means for me and what my, my story means for me. Um, and as I've healed, I'm, I'm bringing that score down. I'm getting control of these symptoms. <laughs> Good job. That's amazing. That's really, really, your whole story is pretty fascinating and amazing. And I'm grateful that you decided to come on here. Now tell us about your um, webpage and your advocacy before we have sure. to go. So um, when I first started counseling back in 2017, might've been 16. I can't remember. I honestly can't remember. I think it was 17. I think this was all in 17. This happened, but anyways, I started my website about five months after um, I started counseling. I've always been a writer. I always wanted to be a writer as a kid. Um, So my website is www.survivingchildhoodtrauma.com all spelled out. And I'll list Um, that on the um, de-shaming webpage underneath her podcast recording. 
awesome for you guys. Um, and I just, I basically had, I started using that platform as a public diary. So, um, you know, and I was very sporadic in the first few years this year with the pandemic being home, the changes in my life and just like the, you know, way things are, um, I've been way more focused now on my advocacy. It's not just like this part-time, you know, this thing I did when I was feeling overwhelmed, I'll go right. Um, now I'm really focused on that advocacy. Um, but my website is a, a lot of everything. I've got all my Dear Diary posts, which is just my story. I've got my poetry up there. Um, I write journal prompts based on things that I'm going through. Um, I do all my, I have my Instagram, very active on Instagram. I do a weekly show every Thursday um, called Survivors Speak Live. Um, and I have uh, child abuse survivors come on, share their stories. And we just talk about trauma healing and <clears throat> just that messy journey of being an adult survivor of childhood trauma. And what's your um, at on Instagram so they can find you? At Surviving Childhood Trauma. Trauma, okay. Yep, to, all spelled out. Wow. Um, and and that's that's just kind of what I do now. I do these, you know, interviews to share my story. I'm very appreciative, like I said earlier, um, to have the platform to to speak my truth and to hopefully bring, you know, some comfort to others. It, it's healing for me to share because, I, like I said earlier, I release a little bit of it every time I, I speak it aloud. Um, and put it back on them, the people that did this to me, instead of holding it inside of me. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's me. I write and I, um, I share and I teach and a kindergartner virtually. I teach a, a kindergartner virtually and um, yeah, you know, I do the wife thing and the mom thing. And the I try to do the sister and the friend thing. <laughs> Um, you know, you'd think for uh, the way we, everything halted with the pandemic, life did not get any calmer. <laughs> no, it didn't. Not at all. Not one bit. Well, Shannon, I'm super grateful, super, really super grateful to you. And I just want to add that, um, I think the, the biggest thing that we as survivors have to teach ourselves, especially about relationships and, um, children is my, um, my end all be all of women who I adore is Maya Angelou and her quote every yes. time I screw something up goes through my head is when you know better you do better okay. and that's the whole point of all of of the de-shaming movement first of all is exactly what you said that the shame doesn't belong to me it belongs to my abusers it belongs to your abusers and mm -hmm. when we know better and we learn better than what we were taught then we get to do better and the more that we all talk and the more that we all learn, we the more we're going to do better. So yes. I think that's a, a big thing that I want people to remember is that you have to forgive yourself. And it's hard because we're not taught that as children. Right. You know, everything we do is performance-based. Right, yeah. We grow up believing we're the defective ones. I've absolutely. measured my worth against other people's opinions my whole life. <laughs> yeah, because you weren't allowed to have your own. Yep. And that was yep. another thing I wanted to comment on was, you weren't allowed to develop you, the you, yourself, yeah. because you were, as most survivors of incest abuse are, because it's in the home. It's the people mm -hmm. who are supposed to teach you how to be functioning human beings and loving human beings in this world. And yeah. you're spend your old childhood playing a chess game, trying not to get raped. I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, that's just essentially what it comes, or verbally abused or emotionally abused or physically mm -hmm. abused. And so you don't, yeah. the same you that you should be able to develop doesn't really get to rear its head until you face all the shit that they put on you. Well, yeah, that's, you know, we talk, I talk about that a lot with survivors, even, um, 
we, those of us that have complex trauma, complex PTSD that <clears throat> grew up with long-term sustained continuous abuses, we don't have a before. Right. So we don't, we don't recreate, we completely build. Once yeah, we okay. realize that we were completely hindered of anything, you know, of when we were, we were stopped from becoming, we, we have to it's like, it's like a self-discovery. It's not like, a, oh, I'm going to go, oh, I know where I can fall back on. It's like, wow, I actually have to figure out who I am, what I like and don't like, what I believe and don't believe, what I feel and don't feel, how I feel, how I respond. To yeah, it's exactly. like, it is such yeah. a, oh my gosh, what a, yeah, it's been. And there's not a foundation either. And then to do it at, like, I'm going to, I'll be 41 in next, it's, it's not November yet, 41 next month. Okay. I'll be 41 next month. And it's like, sometimes the hardest shame, embarrassment, guilt to let go of is that I should have this shit figured out by now. And that's society telling you that. And, and that's a big, well, we on you're women. right. It is society, yeah. but it's how I, you know, it's, I was, I, I've been conditioned to think, okay, at my age, I should have my shit together. I shouldn't be falling apart. I shouldn't be struggling to get a shower every day or, to get oh, food on the table yeah. or, you know, to gain control. I shouldn't be responding to, I hate it when I get triggered in public and I'm trying to like rear in the teenage response. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm an adult. I'm not a teenager. <laughs> I'm not going to respond like one. I hate that. You know, yeah. it's, it's tough. It's tough being a survivor, but I love my community because they make me feel less crazy and that. less alone. See, and that's the beautiful thing is that we are all here to make each other feel quote, I'm using quotes, normal. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we, we are the village that all our inner children needed to raise Preach. us. Preach. <laughs> Just that sister. Yes. Love that. But thank you so much for today. Oh, I do very much you. appreciate the opportunity to share and talk. I'm super grateful you came on and we'll have, um, all your info, your D shame or the, I'm sorry, surviving childhood trauma. Say it, say it yeah, again. Surviving, surviving childhood trauma. Okay. So that's um, her website and her IG and I'll have yep. links to those in her little blurb below the podcast recording. Awesome. I'm Can very I excited. Think you're badass. I'm pretty sure we'll have you Thank on you. again to talk about the other stuff. Oh gosh. Anytime. Yeah, I'm an open book. Parenting. We were talking before we started recording guys about the parenting aspect. And I think that's an important thing that we're going to touch on. So yes. I'm sure you'll be back, but thanks. yes, anytime. Super grateful that you were here. And uh, you, I hope you. this helps all of you guys, each and every one of you on your path to de-shaming because the shame and abuse and any inadequacy or I am not enough doesn't belong to you. That is layered onto you by your abusers. Okay, take care, guys.